Good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. It's always great to have guests with us and members know that we are praying for you. Um, we are in a series right now just on biblical eldership, biblical deaconship, and we'll be ending our series this morning. And then after, we'll have a vote or affirmation. We will affirm the calling that God has on the men uh, as elders and deacons in this local church. We'll be able to lead you guys into how to do that, and immediately after that, we'll have a meal together. But I do want to share this with you. In the month of February, our church will be a part of a church-wide fast the entire month of February. Um, we've created this little booklet or pamphlet, whatever you want to call it, guide for prayer. It's in the back. If you walked in, maybe the greeters gave you some. If, if not, then you can go ahead and grab it. But I just kind of walk, want to walk through it very quickly just to help you understand everything you need to know is in this, okay, um, as to what we're going to be doing. Why? Why fasting? The Bible talks about fasting. It's not just an Old Testament principle, but it's a New Testament principle as well. Jesus says, when the bridegroom is taken, then you will fast. So it's not if we will fast, it's when we will fast, right? So um, I also shared in, in this little um, pamphlet or booklet, I'm kind of struggling with figuring out what to call it, but anyway, you know what it is. Uh, fasting is abstaining from what our bodies crave and replacing it with a craving and delight for Christ. Fasting and praying go hand in hand. Fasting allows us to kill our earthly cravings Prayer gives birth to our heavenly cravings. Prayer allow us, allows us to long for Christ. Um, so this is how we look at it, right? Uh, how will we fast? We'll fast the entire month of February. Um, you know, you can fast from, from whatever God is calling you to fast from. From food, uh, you can fast one day a week from food, um, but make sure you spend time in prayer. You can fast from TV. Uh, you can fast from social media. You can fast from coffee. Your wife might not like you if you fast from coffee, but nevertheless, fast from what you need to fast from. The most important thing is, as you abstain and you kill those earthly cravings, you want to replace it with a heavenly craving, and this is what prayer does. It gives birth to a heavenly craving. And with that, we have created uh, several prayer groups for you. So uh, are there prayer groups throughout the week that, we, that will encourage you to pray? Yes, there are. If you're asking that question, yes, there are. So uh, we have women's prayer group. Uh, if you notice on that uh, the, the booklet, uh, Jody Snow is leading the group. Tina Detailier, uh, Detailier, Casey Scribner, Sarah Foray, Sarah Birch, Beth Celestine. The men we have group as well. Groups as well. Kevin Celestine, I'm leading the group. Lucas Bolden, Yui Rivet, John Dighton, Biff Bourgeois. Um, what will we pray for? There are topics. There are four main topics for four weeks. Uh, the first topic is specifically on your spiritual growth. Pray for your spiritual growth. Pray that God will give you a deeper love for him, a deeper love for people, a deeper love for his word, a deeper love to serve, a deeper a desire to pray, right? Um, also in that, the, the second week is pray for your family. Pray for your husband. 
Uh, pray for your wife. So the first thing is pray for your wife. We have, um, uh, we compile a list of several things, 11 things that women at FBC Thibodeau has mentioned and given us to pray for. So husband, we have content. We have a lot of content and we have ways to pray for our wives, right? Um, ask your wife individually. The list, they're, they're just here to give you a guide. But one of the best ways to pray for your wife is to go to her and say, how can I pray for you? If you have not already done that. Um, second is pray for your husband. If you notice in the booklet, I put pay for your husband, how to pay for your husband. That's a typo, right? So Old Testament, uh, we, we, man had to pay for their wives. The New Testament is not saying we pay for our husbands. So um, it, it's, it's simply a typo. I'm sorry about that. Um, but pray for your husband. So several men from this church have given us uh, things to pray for. How can you pray for them as husbands in this local church? We, we're giving you a list as well, how to pray for your children. If you don't know how to, hear how to pray for your children. Several things to pray for your children. Week 3, 15, February 15th to the 21st, we pray for the lost, giving you several things to pray for. Pray that God would open their eyes. We have this in Acts chapter 26, verse 18, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, right? We need God to open their eyes. If God doesn't open their eyes, they will not see the glorious gospel. Pray that God would give you an open door to share the gospel. Colossians chapter 4 verse 2. The apostles Paul asked the church at Colossae to pray for an open door as he shares the gospel. And pray that God would send several people in their lives, Christians in their lives, to share the gospel to them. Week 4, February 22nd through February 28th, we pray for the church. I'm giving you a list of things to pray for concerning the church. And finally, based on the content that we should have to pray for our local church, every week we have a list of names um, which are people who are members of this local church that you can pray for every week. So you have a lot of content to pray for. Please be engaged in this. Please come and be a part of the prayer groups that, that we have um, that's happening. Uh, and, and watch what God is going to do as you spend your, the beginning of this year, praying and seeking God. Amen? Amen. Amen. I hope this is helpful. Um, the one thing I would say is just change, pray for your husband and not pay for your husband. Um, but everything else should be fine. Okay? Um, with that said, let's jump into the word of God together. Uh, this is the last sermon in a series of biblical leadership. So uh, this is in uh, the pa pa passage of scripture is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. When you've arrived to the text, say word, word. Can you please stand? We stand out of reverence to God's holy and righteous word. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. But those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, speak to our hearts this morning. 
Um, God, we have a decision to make after all of this. Uh, we, we are called as a church to see you at work and to affirm what you're doing. So thank you. Thank you for the spirit within this church. Thank you for the, your people who are united and your people who are seeking to be biblical. So teach us what we do not know. Make us what we're not and give us what we do not have. And God's people says, amen. <clears throat> the title for today's sermon is Biblical Deaconship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer states or um, stated, the church does not need brilliant personalities, but faithful servants of Jesus and the brethren. He is right. The church doesn't need brilliant personalities, and although we see a lot of churches in America is built on the personality of one man, of one teacher, right? The church is not called to be built on people's brilliant personalities but on gifted men and women that God has given us, servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He is encouraging the church at Ephesus to not build on the foundation of the church brilliant personalities, but biblical men to lead the church, elders and deacons within the local church altogether. So the, for the last couple of weeks, we've noticed on eldership, and we talked about the importance of an elder, an overseer, a pastor, a bishop. These are all words used to describe the same office, right? And today we will transition from eldership to deaconship, a deacon. In the New Testament, the word deacon is the word servant. Literally, in that culture, it was a table waiter, one who waits others, one who serve others. In that culture specifically, they looked down on deacons. They looked down on people who were serving. So they would say, uh, basically, if you are serving people in that way, in that culture, you are very low. You're not high. As a matter of fact, what they would say in the Greek culture is ruling, not serving, is proper for a man. But when he came to Jesus, he changed all of that. Thank God. For Jesus, he would say it's serving and not ruling, which is proper for a man. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 22, verse 27, this is exactly what Jesus mentioned. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? And I can imagine the disciples and everyone, the one who reclines at the table. But Jesus is so good at debunking our belief system sometimes, right? He's so good at showing us how wrong we are and what we need to pursue. He says, is it not? The one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. <laughs> I am serving you, and you know what God is doing mightily here. So, friends, listen, we see the importance of people in the local church. Christians, we are called to serve one another. John chapter 12, verses 26, he says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So we see that Jesus is all about service, that we ought to serve one another. And the deacon is called to serve God's people. So 
Before we dive into understanding more about a deacon, I want to give you a definition of a deacon from looking at this passage of scripture and Titus and the entirety of scripture. So it's a paragraph, but here it goes. A deacon is a person who is self-sacrificing. He gives his time, heart, and service to the Lord and to others. So it's not just to people. First, he gives his time, service, and heart to the Lord. And then he serves people. Out of a self-sacrificing heart stands a self-mastery life, a disciplined life for the Lord. A deacon is primarily a servant of the Lord. His ultimate desire is to please the Lord, not men. And although he serves men, he does it because he serves God. It's so important for us, especially in our religion, SBC, to define what a deacon is. Because what happens oftentimes is if you are popular, if you have a good personality, if you're out there, all of a sudden people are like, let's vote on him to be a deacon. And we've seen this multiple times in SBC churches. People who are in the deacon office should not be deacons. Some of them are probably not even safe. Some of them have none of those qualifications. A story was told when I was in seminary that one of my professors said to me when he was a pastor that an older woman came to him and said, Sir, I would like my young son to be a deacon. I've been a part of the church for a long time. And, and what I want you to understand is this. Although my son is not coming to churches often, but he was raised in the church. Although he's married to an unbeliever, but he was raised in the church. He's a banker, and he has a lot of money, and he has influence, and I think he would be a great deacon. Are you serious? Is that what Scripture is calling for a deacon to be? No. A deacon is one who serves God, who serves people. And here the Apostle Paul is going to give us the qualification of a deacon. We do not have to reinvent the will here. We're not called to put people with brilliant personalities in leadership. No, we are called to look and see those qualifications in their lives and then affirm what God is doing, period. Not because you have money, not because you're popular, not because you have a lot of influence that makes you a deacon. No. What makes you a deacon? Love God. Love people. Be disciplined in serving God and people in pursuing biblical things, in managing your family, in loving your wife. This is what Scripture is saying here. This morning, I want us to observe four qualifications of a deacon. Okay? One, his self-mastery. We see this in verse 8. Two, his spiritual maturity. His spiritual maturity. I was saying this with my children, and I want you to get this. I think a perfect definition of immaturity is the inability to act on behalf of others. And you can see it from a toddler to a 99-year-old man or woman. The inability to act on behalf of others, whether it's emotionally, whether it's physically, financially, you're always thinking about you, that's immaturity. And when it comes to spirituality, we are constantly growing in maturity. And one of the ways you grow in maturity is you have a deep love for God's 
people. You have a deep love for God's people. So his spiritual maturity. We see it in verses 9 through 10. 3, his irreproachable home life. We see this in verses 11 through 12. And 4, his reward. His reward. Even in his reward, we see his character. We see this in verse 13. With that said, I pray that you are ready to encounter the qualifications here mentioned in Scripture. We don't want religion to inform us here. We don't want the SBC or Pentecostal church or the Catholic church to tell us what we need to do here. We need the Bible. Yes, we are SBC, and thank God for what God is doing for us here. But the reason why we are SBC is because we believe it's in accordance to the word. So the moment SBC says we are no longer trusting and believing in the word, guess what? We're not going to be SBC. We want the word to inform us. Period. Not religion. The word. So what is the word saying to us here? And Paul mentions that. First, his self-mastery. So the first thing he does here, he says a deacon must be dignified, which is the operative word here. And here, it defines the terms by all beginning with not. So three things that he mentions. So, so for you to be dignified, there are three things that you should not be. <laughs> in other words, what Paul is doing. Can, can, can you explain this, Kevin? Notice again in verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified. How are you dignified? I'm dignified and respectable by not being double-tongued. By not being addicted to much wine. By not being greedy for dishonest gain. Do you get it? So he is called to be respectable. And those three knots show us how he is respectable. The first thing here, the first one is that he is called to not be a double-tongued person. Double talkers. In other words, he's called, positively, he's called to be sincere. What he says is what you get. He's not saying one thing to you, and he goes to the elders, and he says something completely different. He's not saying one thing to his wife and children, but he comes in his Sunday school, and he says something completely different. No, he is consistent with the Word of God and what he says. He's not a double talker. He's not one to cause division among the church. He's one who is sincere, according to what Paul is saying here. Like Will Rogers described, he says, not afraid to sell. I love this. Get this, get this picture. Coming closer. This deacon here that Paul is talking about is not afraid to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. <laughs> this is good. He's not afraid to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. Why? Because he is respectable. He is sincere. He's credible. The second point here is that he mentions that he is not indulging with much wine. He's not a, a drunkard. Doesn't mean that he cannot drink at all. But what it says here specifically is that he is not one addicted to alcohol. I want to say this very carefully. This is very, very important. Very, very important. 
Although we struggle with seeing, okay, what does the Bible say about drinking, right? What does the Bible say about drinking? This is not a lesson here about drinking. But I do need to mention that because I know perhaps there are some of you who struggle with alcoholism. So, so what you do is you abstain altogether because it's a major struggle for you. But what does the Bible say altogether? Does the Bible say drinking is a sin? The Bible doesn't say that. But for those of us who feel we have the freedom to drink, and we will cause other people to stumble, there's a major issue. Maybe perhaps you're addicted when you say, I don't care about whoever's around me. I don't, I don't care if there's a brother who's struggling with alcoholism. Well, there's a major issue too. Perhaps you are addicted and you need to abstain, even if you feel you have a sense of freedom. Here, the Bible is pertaining to or calling us to a sense of self-control. So for those of you who are addicted to this, stay away from it. Stay away from it. For those of you who are not addicted to it and you think it's okay, be careful to use your freedom that God has given you carefully. Don't cause others around you to stumble. So it's just a very important thing. We can look at other passages of Scripture, but I, I needed to mention this here. So here he says, do not indulge in much wine, right? He's not intoxicated with, with, with wine on a consistent basis. There's a sense of self-control that he serves God, he serves people. Third, we notice that he's not greedy for money. This man, when you look at him, he, he has a heart for God. If you do a spiritual MRI of his heart, you will not find that money is holding on to his heart or he is holding on to money. However, you will find that God has his heart and he wants God's heart. He's not pursuing money in this way. He's not, he's not addicted to it. He's not a lover of money. So he says, don't do these things. So a respectable, a dignified elder is one who is not addicted to much wine, is one who is not a lover of money, who's one who is sincere, right? That's the first characteristic he mentions there. First qualification he mentioned here. But notice as well the second point, his spiritual maturity. His spiritual maturity. We see this in verses 9 through 10. Notice in your own Bibles, 9 through 10. He tells us here that this elder, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I love this. Because elders are called to be teachers of the word, the office of a teacher, right? We're all called to teach in a general sense, but the office of a teacher is given to an elder. It's not necessarily given to a deacon. It doesn't mean a deacon cannot teach. It doesn't mean that. What it means specifically is when you talk about an elder, an elder must be able to teach. When you talk about a deacon, you might find a deacon who's able to teach, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's the qualification he must have. There are a lot of deacons who are not teachers, and that's fine. What he's called to do specifically here is that he's called to hold on to the mystery of the faith. Now stop. What is Paul talking about here as the mystery of the faith? The mystery of the faith is the mystery of the gospel. And that is given to those who are the spiritual, who has a sense of spiritual discernment. The mystery of the gospel. Well, Kevin, can you explain that a little bit more? Ephesians chapter 6 verse 19, the apostle Paul mentioned, and also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. You see it? 
The mystery of the faith here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9, is the mystery of the gospel. What else do we have in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3? At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So, the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the faith points to the same thing, on account of which I am in pre-prison. So why is that? The gospel is a mystery to some. And we have to define what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is not Jesus love you. That's an element of the gospel. We can't just go to a sinner and say, Jesus loves you and expect him to be saved. No, we need to give more. The gospel is not just live your life right. No. The Buddhists can do the same thing, say the same thing. The Muslims can say the same thing. It's not just live your life right. What is the gospel? When we articulate the gospel, we must articulate the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why it's called the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of faith. And what is the mystery? That God so loved the world, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth. He was born a virgin birth. He lived a perfect life. He died upon the cross for our sins. He was buried on the third day. He resurrected. He ascended into heaven and he's ruling on high. That's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus and we must articulate the gospel in this way. So here he talks about the mystery of the faith, the mystery of Christ. And here he's saying that the deacon must know of that mystery. He must cherish that mystery. Everything he does as he serves people, as he honors his wife, as he manages his children, as he has a sense of self-mastery, all of that is because of the gospel. And he needs that calling. He, he needs to constantly remember how Jesus saved him to continue in the ministry of a deacon. It's not easy, right, Brother Gerald? <laughs> it's not easy, right, Brother Yui? It's not easy. It's not an easy calling. So what you need is you need to hold on to the mystery of the gospel, mystery of faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it gives us a perfect picture of why people rebel against the gospel. The natural person does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But the deacon understands the mystery. God has granted him great faith to understand the mystery. Understand the mystery. So, so stop. This is important. Notice very carefully how the Apostle Paul says here in the text, in verse 9, look in your own Bibles. I'm going somewhere with this because this is good. This is good. In verse 9, he says this, and he mentions, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And this is good because throughout the book of 1 Timothy, every time he mentions the word conscience, a lot of times, or every time, it's, it's, come, it's actually put together with faith. So faith, good faith, and conscience are put together, are mentioned together. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. You see it, good conscience, sincere faith. They are together. In chapter 
1 verse 19, he does the same thing, holding on to faith and a good conscience. So, so don't miss this. Faith is the gospel which influences his conscience. To have a good conscience, you need faith to influence a good conscience. His faith is what he believes. His conscience is his behavior. And don't miss this. Come in closer and write this down. What he believes, what the deacon believes about God will determine how he follows God. His faith penetrates his soul and is informing his life. So I'm so thankful the Apostle Paul mentioned conscience here. Because when you think about conscience, it's the human faculty given by God to every person. The conscience is designed to alert and teach each person when they have violated God's moral law. So, so I don't care if you're in the Amazon jungle. I don't care if you're on Wall Street. Every human being knows morally that murder is a problem. Even if you do it, you know something is wrong. They know adultery is wrong. They know lying is a problem. Why? Because of God's moral law. Because of the fact that we are born in, we, we are, we are born in the image of God, the imago Dei of God. So there is this moral conscience here. But that moral conscience can be good or bad. And the Apostle Paul mentioned later on of the false teachers when he says specifically that their conscience have been seared by a hot iron. I think a perfect example of this, and I want you to get this because there's a great application here. I want you to get this. A perfect example of this, an illustration of this is Pinocchio, Disney's Pinocchio. I think we can learn a lot from that. Pinocchio was this this wooden puppet that the fairy made and became alive. And Pinocchio wanted to be a real boy. But we notice like, throughout the movie that he's very naive. But the fairy gave Pinocchio this conscience. And who is the conscience? The good conscience. Audience participation. Jiminy Cricket, right? It's just one person who watched Pinocchio? Wow. <laughs> Man, come on, guys. I need your help. Right? Jiminy Cricket, right? So Jiminy Cricket, he is the good conscience. And we notice that whenever Jiminy Cricket is not around, what happens to Pinocchio? He gets in trouble. But there are also bad conscience in Pinocchio's life. And who are they? Stromboli is one, right, who convinced him to do something. The fox, right? He is one. The little boy on Treasure Island who found a sense of freedom from his family and he would drink and smoke. He is another one. So we notice that when, when Pinocchio had the good conscience, he would make good decisions. But when he was around people who were bad, he found himself making bad decisions. And there is a point here for you. Here is a point here. Here, the Apostle Paul is saying to us that our good conscience is motivated, stimulated, and guided by our faith in the Word of God. So for the deacon, he holds tightly to the mysteries of the gospel. And he has a good and clear conscience because of the mysteries of the gospel. But when he deviates from that, when he deviates, when he turns away from that, his conscience is clouded and bad. But it's not just the deacon. That's every single one of us. The Apostle Paul says to stay close 
to the mystery of the gospel. Never depart from the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself, even when you think it's too basic. And you need some theological stuff that's way bigger than that. No, nothing is bigger than the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even if you feel it's too mundane. No, friends, hold on to the gospel, preach the gospel, and live the gospel. That's what stimulates a desire to serve God and serve others. So, notice Eric F. Lee, what Kent Hughes mentions. A man's faith is in great shape when his conscience does not reproach the way he lives. How is your conscience? How is your conscience? And then perhaps I can even diagnose if you have a clouded conscience, a bad conscience, it's because you have departed from the gospel and the word. So go back to it. Hold on to it. Deacons, hold on to it. Hold on to it. The next thing he mentions is verse 10. So we're still noticing his maturity, right? His maturity. He holds on to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He thinks deeply about others and deeply about God. And in verse 10, it says here that this man, this man must be tested and approved before being put in a position. So, and this is, this is perfect. This is, this is what we are doing here, right? What we do is we say, we don't put someone in a position. We see what God is doing in them within the local church and affirm what God is doing. So, so the church is the training ground, right? Like, like this old woman who said, come, put my son in this deaconship position. No. What, what happens is, is he coming to church? Is he serving people? Does he have a deacon's heart? Does he have this qualification? So we look and we affirm and we say, thank God. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. Don't, don't just put someone in a position. Make sure he's approved. Make sure he's doing the work of a deacon. A deacon is like a sponge. When he, when he squeezes what's on the inside will come out. It will. And third, his reproachable home life. His reproachable home life. We see it in verses 11 through 12. The deacon's wife must be above reproach is one way we can look at this. So in this, in verse 11, it uses the word likewise. So there are two interpretations here concerning this text. Reading your own Bibles very carefully. It says this in verse 11 of chapter 3. Their wives likewise must be. So stop. There are two interpretations here. The one interpretation is that Paul is transitioning from one category to another category. As a matter of fact, the way he has used the word likewise throughout the book of 1 Timothy will help us understand this. For example, the apostle Paul mentioned the word likewise already. He had mentioned it in chapter 2 verse 9 and he transitions from talking about the role of a man to a role of a woman. And then he uses the word likewise again in chapter 1 to talk about the elder. And then he transitions by using likewise again from elders to deaconship. In other words, every time the apostle Paul uses the word likewise, he is transitioning from one category to another category. So he's transitioned from eldership to deaconship, and now he's transitioning from deaconship to deaconesses. So women deacons. So this is a view that is 
that is very popular. It was very popular in the early church. The early church fathers believe in deaconesses, and we also have passages of scripture that points to the deaconesses as well. For example, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11, 16, verse 1, Phoebe was a deaconess, and it says this, I commanded, I, I comm commanded to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, right? So here the word servant is the same word as deacon. So it is clear that in the New Testament, they were deaconesses. So what happened in our culture? Perhaps that went away from the local church, but that is a view that is held. That's the view that I believe as well. Here specifically, the Apostle Paul is talking about deaconesses. And there is a place for women in the church to serve as deacons. There's no doubt. Leadership for them to serve as deacons. We believe that because there are scriptures to point to that. But not only that, I think also history and Pliny's famous letter to the Roman Emperor Trajan written in AD 112, this is what he mentions. He mentioned two slave women and they were called deaconesses. So the culture also embraced that as well. We have history. We have scripture. Deaconesses is a biblical thing. But at the same time, you have some who would translate this likewise to pertain to just the wives of the deacon. And some of the, prob the problem with that perhaps might be, why would you talk, why would Paul take the time to talk about the deacon's wives but not the elder's wives? Do you notice this? It's a good question. For those of us who take this approach that he's talking about the deacon's wives, why didn't he talk about the elder's wives? Because I think it's, it's given. If a man is called to, to be an elder and to be a deacon, he must have the support of the wife. This is why I think he's not talking about the deacon's wives here. This is a given thing. So here specifically, I believe he's talking about deaconesses within the church. Whatever you, view you take, whatever view you take, I think it's important to understand that this man, this elder, or this deacon here must be above reproach in his home. And how must he do it? This is exactly what the Apostle Paul mentioned. One, the deacon must have an above reproach life as a husband. He must be a husband of one wife. The Greek literally translate this as a one woman man. He cherishes his wife. It's not the status here of marriage, but he focuses more on the quality of marriage, just like that of the elder. He cherishes her, he leads her, he cares for her. So see, see how this deacon and elder treat their wives. Two, the deacon must have an above reproach life as a father. If you notice in the text, it mentioned that he must manage his household as well. He must pastor his family. His greatest service is his family, not you. And this is important that you must understand this. One of the greatest things that you can do for your deacons is to pray for your deacon, pray for your deacon's family, pray for your deacon's children, and don't expect your deacon to leave everything to just come serve you first, right? Yes, he's called to serve you. Yes, we're called to serve one another. But pray for them. These men are, are lay deacons. These elders that we are putting in position are lay elders. They have full-time jobs. 
Yes, we can ask them to come help us, but, but be careful to not put heavy burdens on them. Because if all they do is serve you and don't serve their family, the first thing you will do is say, oh, oh that's a typical elder's son. <laughs> I've heard that a lot of times, you know, from other people. Oh, the pastor's kids, man, they are the worst. You know why perhaps they are the worst? Because we put so much on the pastors that they don't have enough time to pastor their family. Oh, you don't understand, the deacon's kids are really bad. You know why? Because the deacons don't have enough time to spend time with their children. So we as a church must understand that role to encourage these men to pastor their families, to spend time with their families. Yes, they will serve you, but we need to meet them and say to them, yes, serve us as we can serve you. Say, brother, when was the last time you spent time with your children? When was the last time you did something with your family? How can I pray for your family? How can I pray for your children? That's very important. And finally, friends, his reward in verse 13. Notice what Paul mentions there. Here he says, if they serve well, they will receive a twofold reward before men and before God. Let me just read this. Let me read this, and this is important for us to see. It's very important for us to see. In verse 13, he says this. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. So, so first, there is a great standing before people. He serves people well and God well. And people look at him and understand there is a great reputation here. This is what he does. He, he serves God and he serves people. And at the same time, there's another reward that he gets, a sense of confidence that he's doing the right thing before God. He's doing the right thing before God. God, I love your people. I serve your people. But most importantly, God, I love you. And there is great confidence in what I'm doing because you are strengthening me. Friends, not just a deacon experience something like this, but we too can experience this. Listen to this very carefully. It is just a given fact that those who serve understand more about God. It is a given fact. If any of you just sitting in the pews, not serving, you will struggle tremendously in understanding more about God. God does something amazingly when his people serve him. And this is why Paul is saying there's this twofold sense of reward and blessing because a deacon is constantly serving people. So when you serve, you understand something great about God. God begins to lavish knowledge upon you about him and joy in him. But when you don't serve, you struggle tremendously. I'm not saying that just because I'm trying to get you to serve here in the local church. No, I, I really believe if you don't serve, you will struggle tremendously. They grow in knowledge of God. Their confidence stems from a life service to God. So serve God. Serve people. And notice what God's going to do in your life. So as we close, friends, see of the importance of a deacon and a deaconess. We're voting on one deacon today. But in the future, our hope is to install deaconesses in this church as well. It is important that we follow what Scripture says. But for us, we want to move slowly as God is moving mightily. We want to trust God. 
And we want our people to be in one accord as we move forward.